This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. started i have two house things um one if you're on the zoom call then um, please you're invited to ask questions uh in the chat function you'll find a button down at the bottom um and we will try and deal with those as we go i say to alexandra and nigel um to have a look at the chat if you see something relevant one of the questions then um please you know you can bring it up and insert into the conversation um, this is being streamed uh, via Zoom. Uh, it'll also being it's being live streamed on our YouTube channel, and there'll be a recording of it as soon as we get off. And we're also streaming um, on Twitter. Um, what's it called? Twitter. Um, um, I forget the name. Um, the Spaces, of course. Um, so for all our audio video uh, hearers, welcome to this. And there'll be a podcast version on our own website at the end. You can find links to all of that um, if you go to bne.eu slash welcome. Um, there are links there to the YouTube channel and the podcast. Um, and there are also some goodies. Um, I encourage you to sign up to Editor's Picks, which is a free email digest we do every day from the best stories from the last 24 hours. And if you're in the game, a professional, and you want a lot more information, then please take a trial to our premium version, the uh, IntelliNews Pro, where um, all our reporters from across the re region are filing every day. Um, you can have a look at that via bne.eu slash welcome. So with that, I would like to welcome uh, Alexander Tito, um, who is a lecturer in Belfast on modern history and a Russia follower. We've been on panels before. And also to Nigel Gould Davis, who's a former British ambassador to Belarusia, and he's now a fellow at IIS, which stands for Nigel IIS is what exactly? It's the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Right. And also a Russia Watcher expert. Um, we actually happily met in the pub in London last week, where there's a sort of Russian night, um, and started a conversation which was actually the inspiration for doing this podcast. But of course, let's dive straight in because the big news has been uh, President Xi Jinping has been in Moscow for three days with Putin in what looks like it could have been a historic meeting because with everything going on, um, my takeout from it was that China has actually gone up a gear because until now it's sort of kept its head down and let Putin take the lead in relationships with the West and you know do all the fighting. But by coming out so strongly um, in support of Putin, in defiance of the states, by turning up and going to see Putin, who is now a pariah and also, you know, a criminal on the run after he's been indicted by the uh, ICC, um, was a pretty strong message. Having said that, everyone's been chewing through what was actually said. And the takeout is that Putin offered a lot and said a lot had been done, but the Chinese side said virtually nothing concrete. And one of the takeouts has been that um, now Putin sort of bend the knee to Xi Jinping and that Russia is very much a junior partner, that he's given up on his aspirations to become a superpower, and he's basically going to have to do what um, Beijing tells him. So, Alexander, I could start with you, because we were tweeting about this, this phrase, junior partner. But, and again, the Western take in the press I've been reading is like Putin's just lost it. You know, he's now slave to China. He's got no power control at all. But this nature, you know, what exactly is the nature of the junior partner? Because, you know, there's still, uh, Beijing is, is now upping its energy dependence on Russia, um, although that's going slowly. And then specifically that deal, the Paris-Siberia 2 deal that Putin says it's almost done. The Chinese, though, if you look through the joint statement, gas wasn't even mentioned. Novak came out this morning, Russia's point guy on energy, and said the deal's in its final stages and should be completed by the end of the year. But I remember when uh, she came to Moscow 10 years ago, last time he got elected president, and they started the uh, negotiations on Paris-Siberia 1. And then that went on for years because um, they couldn't agree on the price. And I think to this day, we still don't know how much the Chinese are paying for Russian gas. So what, what's your thoughts? Um, is Russia a junior partner? And if so, what does that mean? 
Alexander? Well, yeah, I'm not sure it's um, kind of very helpful to think about in those terms. I mean, China is bigger, uh, obviously, in terms of its uh, economy and um, uh, population and so overall um, you know, potential um, for, uh, for, uh, for, for power in, in kind of world terms. But at the same time, you know, uh, is there anything when you think about junior partner, uh, what does it actually mean? Does China make Russia do something it doesn't want to do? Does it limit it in some ways, which, you know, Russia wouldn't have been want to be to be limited? You know, does it tell us to not to build uh, kind of a pipeline there, but build a pipeline here? Um, it, I mean, it's all very much uh, kind of vague and unspecified. What Russia wants now, of course, it's um, heavily dependent on China in terms of if China pulls the plug on Russia, it will be really be stuck in terms of its ability to uh, continue operating in terms of uh, its economy and you know, probably, probably military and so forth. But uh, so it does need China. That's no question about it. But at the same time, when you say junior, I, I don't see I, I think people need to be very specific about uh, mm. or Vasa and so forth. What does it actually mean? I think uh, there is actually there is uh, a relationship which actually uh, uh, beneficial to both sides. You know, so uh, China needs Russia, not to the same extent that uh, Russia needs China, but at the same time, uh, it's not something which kind of it just uh, bullies around at, the, at this stage anyway. Uh, potentially, it could do if it wanted to, but would actually it, would it need to do it or not? Because I mean, yeah. for China, if you think about China itself. I mean, it has a border problem with India, um, kind of not yeah. not kind of happy relationships. It has lots of border problems with uh, Vietnam, with uh, of course uh, uh, with Japan. Uh, huge problem with uh, America, with the United States, which building all this coalition against China around the uh, Pacific. Uh, to have a problem with its northern neighbor. You know, to have a problem with Russia on top of all those problems would be a total, total nightmare for China, of course. So for yeah. China to have a reliable uh, neighbor to the north, which actually provides us with some strategic resources, such as oil, gas, and um, grain and whatnot, uh, plus giving it um, uh, support politically overall is, is actually a quite important strategic asset. I mean, so I don't think that uh, it's 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 quite that way that, you know, uh, Russia is just, um, you know, what, um, uh, beholden to China and everything else. I think there is quite much more uh, kind of mutually reinforcing uh, relationship than than yeah. than people would like to assume. Nigel, what, what do you think? I mean, Russia in this relationship with China has been described as nothing more than basically a warehouse of natural resources that China can now plunder. And also looking at GDP, I mean, um, I forget who it was. I think it was S and P or, or Ernest and Young, one of those guys, did um, a forecast 2050 and said that China is going to be 20% of global GDP. The states is going to be 20, EU is going to be 20, Russia is going to be 4%. So, you know, it, 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 it's stuck. It, was, it really is dependent on these. But do you, do you think Russia is now just a, a warehouse of raw materials or do you, do you think it's a bit more complicated? On, on, on the Russian GDP figure, I'd say 4% of, of global output is, is very optimistic, actually. It's more likely to be rather, rather less than that. But uh, to the larger point, I think Alexander is absolutely right that uh, we need to be quite careful and precise in specifying what we mean by the terms uh, with which we want to capture this relationship. Now, there's a lot of kind of loose terms thrown around, you know, alliance or uh, or um, uh, or satrap or uh, 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 a, you know, some kind of, sort of dependent relationship. So, what are we talking about uh, exactly? So to me, the, the, the key to sort of capturing the distinction between China and Russia and therefore the relationship between them is, is firstly one of sort of interests. So Russia's interests right now are very specifically and urgently focused on this war that Putin didn't expect to be having to fight a year after his invasion. Everything uh, increasingly both around uh, the organization of Russian society and economy, and also its foreign policies being organized around this. Um, and for China, they have a much broader, as it were, global portfolio of interests. Uh, and there's the, the complex uh, and delicate, but certainly not broken relationship that China has with uh, the United States and also uh, with Europe 
as totally different from the rhetoric that is coming out of uh, the Kremlin about the the burning of pretty much all bridges with the West. So uh, Russia's interests are much more narrowly focused and limited. And corresponding to that, Russia's power as well across all domains, I would argue, uh, the weaknesses of Russia's position in the world laid bare uh, by the war. And that's not, not true of uh, China at all. So the consequence of all of this is that mm -hmm. Russia's bargaining position on pretty much everything is far weaker uh, than China's. So China is stronger, uh, but also it balances its Russia relationship uh, much more carefully with other uh, interests that, that may not be in, in, in Russia's interests. Uh, and we can see this in quite specific detail, I just tweeted uh, out about this uh, just before we came on. So if you look at this over 5,300 word statement that, uh, that Russia and China uh, issued at the end of uh, Xi's visit, there's nine, nine sections to that. Right up there in section two, you've got a very clear statement of Russia's uh, firm support for China's position on Taiwan. Okay, that's it's pretty much exactly what China would have wanted. Buried down in the last section, uh, section nine, below the language about biodiversity, you've got this much more uh, ambiguous language about China's peace plan uh, and Russia appreciates China's interest in resolving uh, the, the conflict in Ukraine. So there's very clear and direct imbalances in the relationship in that very text. Yeah. I think one of the, the 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 main take has been that that um, she came. Putin had to give everything away. That, as you say, everyone acknowledges he's an incredibly weak position. He needs money. He needs arms, and he needs political support. And he needs some sort of legitimacy. And also, the meeting very much was um, a boon for Putin domestically because um, he needs to shore up support domestically to avoid any sort of you know dissent against the war. However, um, I think for me to understand this is trying to work out to what extent this relationship is a two-way street. So we know that Putin is over a barrel and he, you know, the Chinese can take what they want. More interesting question, I think, is what does China want from Russia and how much does it need Russia? Because if you do it in isolation and just look at the Russian position and the Chinese position, then clearly um, Putin has little choice and He's got to get this gas deal done and, and whatever support he can get. But the Chinese, on the other hand, they need the materials as well. And before the war, I mean, they limited their oil imports to 15% from one supplier in order not to get exposed. But now that's gone through the roof um, and they're buying a lot more oil. So they're, they're introduced some sort of energy dependency. And the same would be true for the gas um, when the Paris-Siberia 2 gets done, if it does get done. And also they've opened up their agricultural market, soybeans in particular, which was mentioned in the final statement is, is, a, is an issue. And the bigger picture is that China is going to have a problem with the States. It has a problem already. And the whole Taiwan thing is explosive. I mean, that could, I mean, the, the, the militarization of the South China Sea, and now we've got a much more, we've just seen a much more assertive China. Because for me, the biggest takeaway is the fact that, in effect, Xi Jinping going to Moscow has challenged America for its leadership role globally, and that it stood up, and that Xi Jinping was playing as much to the global south as he was to uh, Washington to say, look, we're an alternative pole. If you've got problems with the Americans, then you can come to us and we can form an alliance against that. And I think a lot of the global South um, will be very receptive to that message because, you know, already we've seen Lula in Brazil come out strongly supporting Russia. We had an Africa conference the same day that Xi Jinping was in Moscow, where a lot of people came out in support of, quote unquote, Putin's multipolar world. And if you put it into that context, then actually China needs to have this alliance of all these other countries, non-aligned countries, if it's going to clash with the states. But Nigel, you're suggesting that that's not on the cards, that China's going to avoid that if it can. Um, I personally think it's kind of inevitable in so much as China now, we've just seen a new, much more assertive China appear on the international stage. And it's like starting on the road that Putin started on in 2002 after 
the states withdrew from the ABM. Nigel, why don't you go first? Uh, do you think any of that makes sense? Yeah, well, I mean, China is uh, China's uh, degree of economic interdependence on on the West is is very high, of course. And is interdependence; it goes both ways, uh, investment and, and also trade. So, you know, we, it's sort of a familiar picture now. But we have this 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 contradiction between, on the one hand, the growing geopolitical estrangement of uh, of Russia. Uh, sorry, I'm China and the West, especially the United States. The recent balloon incident reminded us of the underlying sort of difficulties there. And on the other hand, this deep uh, interdependence, which means a rupture in the relationship is in economic terms in the interests of neither. Now, geoeconomics to some degree is responding to the geopolitics and you're getting this sort of slow decoupling, but I think there are clearly limits to which uh, uh, th that can go. Uh, and nothing like that, obviously, in the Russia Western relationship, we've seen the dramatic sundering of what had been thought of as a very substantial degree of interdependence very quickly. I mean, uh, the well, it e was. I mean, that's the point. It was interdependent. I mean, Russia's just lost its entire gas business. You know, Absolutely. Kind of... In the blink of an eye. That's yeah. a, a, a policy going back to the early 1980s. It's, it's absolutely uh, astonishing. Just on energy, you made the point about uh, the deepening energy relationship now between China and Russia. I suppose the first thing to say, you alluded to uh, the visit that uh, I think Putin made to uh, Beijing in May 2014, just after what we must now call the first uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's finally unlocked the, the decade or more long negotiations on the gas price. And you had a firm agreement finally um, at, at a moment when Russia's position was very weak then, and the speculation is that, of course, China secured a very favorable price for uh, the gas that would come to flow from that, uh, that agreement in May 2014. You have something like a similar situation again, bargaining over Paris-Siberia 2. Uh, that project's still not officially confirmed, of course. Mm -hmm. Putin has talked it up, but there's nothing, I think, as you noted, nothing like that in the final uh, communique. But again, Putin, Russia is the demandeur uh, here. They want that, need that much more than China. And as for China, they do have these other energy options. And of course, many noted the uh, apparent ability of China to, uh, to act as a mediator uh, in the wake of the Iran-Saudi diplomatic breakthrough we've seen. That didn't really have diplomatic significance, it has economic significance. Iran and Saudi Arabia are both major energy producers. It's in China's interests mm -hmm. uh, in purely energy terms if their relationship uh, improves. But isn't that, I mean, I, I took that Saudi-Iran deal to be part and parcel of this new assertive China coming out onto the international stage because before it was Belt and Road. It was largely economic. Everything it was doing foreign policy-wise was economic. And here it was doing pure diplomacy, bringing these two together, as you say, to shore up any energy supplies. But it's again, I, I thought it bolstered my argument that the Beijing is is gathering together, like Russia's been doing, all of these non-aligned countries. Alexander, I mean, what's your view? Well, I think uh, what you said is right. I mean, um, despite the interdependency, huge interdependency between China and the United States and Europe. And so forth. I mean, the, the, the trend is very clear towards more and more uh, antagonism. Um, uh, we can talk about, you know, what's the causes and so forth, but it's clear it's coming from both sides. I think uh, the Americans uh, already imposing sanctions and, you know, on China in very sensitive areas such as semiconductors, mm -hmm. Huawei, uh, and so forth. And that's regardless of, of Russia. So I think, you know, people sitting in Beijing, they know that they will try to, you know, undermine China's um, lead in uh, key areas, uh, regardless of what they do to Moscow or not. Uh, in that sense, I mean, uh, China could do uh, kind of collapse Russia in a sense, you know, stop all the trades, impose you know sanctions like um, America, United States did, stop trading with it and so forth. But why would it want to do it? You know, it really needs Russia. It doesn't want Russia to lose, essentially. You know, for mm -hmm. its strategic interest, the um, uh, NATO and United States invested so much into Ukraine, supporting Ukraine. It would be a huge victory for. Um, for um for the west if uh, if russia were to lose in in ukraine uh but consequently it would 
be um, um, uh, free up resources to focus on China and uh, weak Russia will uh, even further undermine the Chinese, Chinese position. So in that sense, China needs Russia in uh, to uh, remain reasonably um, re reasonably strong uh, because, you know, structural issue here, of course, will be competition between United States and China for foreseeable future. And if you think about power, I mean, where does China buy? Okay, so it buys from Qatar and, um, and from Iran and so forth, but it also buys from the United States and from Australia, big importers. Uh, the issue, uh, everybody's building the um, kind of... Um, um, controlling bases around the um, uh, Pacific Ocean uh, and approaches to China, having actually supply of uh, gas from Russia, which is not dependent on seaborne trade, is a huge boon for China strategically, you know, Can and we... uh, that's that's the direction. It's so it's so simple for China to think of in that, that terms that, it, you know, yes, it, it is a senior partner. Uh, it can be a senior partner, but at the same time, it's it doesn't really need to um, uh, to undermine Russia in, in any way. I mean, I, why, I don't see why. Say, can we not cut this up? I mean, the, we've been arguing that the policy of the West is in Ukraine is to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose and has been escalating with the arms and supplies. Nevertheless, at the same time, um, policy is not to make sure that Ukraine wins by giving it faster, more offensive weapons ahead of the curve. But could you not say the same is true for China, that it needs Russia not to lose this war, because that would be a blow to it. It would take an important partner out if it assumes at some point, at least there's a very high possibility it's going to clash with the states. And at that point, Russia's um, support becomes very useful, no? Well, China's nightmare is Russia either um, <clears throat> uh, kind of losing it altogether uh, or, uh, God forbid, becoming again, um, uh, laying itself with the West. If it's aligned with the West, China is basically encircled, you know, so for mm -hmm. them to actually keep anti-Western government or not, I mean, they're not keeping it, it's, it's, it's going to be a very strong kind of domestic roots and so forth, you know, so it's not like telling Putin what to do or not. But, you know, the trend which Russia has set itself on, on this collision with the West is extremely beneficial to China. And I think, you know, it will be um, in its interest, the way they say from Beijing to, to, uh, to support it, if, um, if uh, whatever, whatever is necessary. I don't think it's, they actually need to do that very much. They can pretend to be neutral while maintaining all the economic links uh, and see what, what, what Russia, how Russia will do. While, while we're here, let, let's take a few minutes to talk about Chinese peace plan, because essentially the peace plan is not a peace plan in so much as it's just like Russia gets to keep everything it's captured and you make the whole of Eastern Ukraine into a demilitarized zone and the Ukraine is going to reject that out of hand. Um, that's obvious. But um, at the same time, I see it that you know China by merely offering the expectations are so low that it doesn't matter if no real peace comes out of this just by looking like a, a mediator again they're playing partly to the global south saying look you know we're here we're going to confront the west we're going to like back our friends um and China would wins a lot of political capital merely by offering it and I was reading in the American press that the White House has actually got a problem now because if they really aggressively reject this peace plan, then again, that's gonna play very badly with the non-aligned countries. You know, in Europe here, everyone's committed, um, no question we're gonna reject the plan and no one has a problem with that. But then the Chinese are already revving up to say, America doesn't want peace. They want the war to go on. It's a proxy war, look what they're doing. The Russian media is playing that line already. And so the White House is actually having to pull back a little bit and is trying to be a little bit more, delicate and i think this is actually the goal of the chinese or rather it's a win-win situation it doesn't matter what happens the chinese will make capital out of this but i mean you, you've been looking at the plan do you do you think it's serious or um do you think something really subtle like that i just described is going on yeah so a couple of points here firstly on the face of it the peace plan uh contains provisions that are unacceptable both to uh ukraine and the west and to russia actually. So, I mean, take the first point alone, the principle of territorial integrity. Now, mm. on the face of it, that implies uh, that the war should be resolved on uh, terms that uh, uh, respect internationally agreed borders. And that means the borders of 1991. 
But that, that language got taken out of the final statement, didn't it? I mean, the Xi Jinping said going in, and uh, Wang in uh, in February were talking about integrity, but the final statement that came out in Moscow didn't have that language. Okay. It was... In Moscow, no, but the version of the peace plan that China published did have that. It also had language about respect for UN principles, one of which, of course, is territorial integrity. Uh, and as you observed, uh, several of the other uh, uh, points in the plan uh, would, would be uh, unacceptable to the other side. So it's a non-starter non uh, as any basis for uh, a settlement. The question then is, uh, as you imply, what is the significance of the fact that China has, has, has done this at all? And um, I think perhaps what's underappreciated is the, the tension between China on the one hand um, seeking to portray itself, or certainly Russia wanting to portray China as, uh, as very close, as essentially supporting Russia. And on the other hand, China playing the role of a mediator. Now, you, can't, you can do one or the other. You can't do both. You can mediate in a conflict, or you can side with one of the parties to the conflict. But you cannot do both at the same time. And I'm not sure that Russia quietly is happy at all that China has uh, stepped in with this peace plan because it does suggest I and mean, what a mediator does is get sides together and helps them uh, agree. Russia is, you know, I mean, the core of its of its identity, especially under this leadership, is that it's a great power. Great powers aren't mediated for. Great powers decide their own fates. Great powers decide how the wars they engage in end. They don't need other states uh, to do that, uh, to, to, to help them do that. So the very fact that China has taken this different position, I think, is, is quietly unsettling to uh, the Kremlin. And there was notably no great enthusiasm during the Xi visit for this plan at all. Uh, and the language in, uh, that, that Putin used was, we will, you know, we, we, we are interested in this plan. There was no, nothing like an endorsement of it. Finally, to your, to your underlying point about the global south, uh, we'll, see, we'll see how this plays out, of course. Um, mm. And it, this has been a longstanding concern of Western policymakers that while resolve within the West and Western public opinion about the, the war is, is, is strong, uh, that... Uh, pressure may grow in other parts of the world uh, to uh, for it to end in on terms that are more favorable to Russia. Uh, I suppose I mean one perhaps provocative question to ask there is, of course, it's it's always nice to have more countries on your side and taking opposition, but in strategic terms, how much does it matter mm. that, that, that the global South uh, doesn't actually fully support uh, Ukrainian position? And if, but if, and if we need a barometer of that support, look at no further than the latest UN General Assembly resolution, which 141, a year on, 141 countries voted to condemn uh, the invasion. So, yeah, I'm not sure this amounts to, to, to so much that the West is worried about. That's a key question, um, because Putin, in effect, has been forced into that. Um, I mean, one of the takeouts for me, watching Putin for all these years, 20 years, he's been banging on about a single market from Lisbon to Vladivostok. And it comes back to this problem he's got in 20, 30 years time when they've got 4% of GDP and they're a minnow compared to the big blocks. And the Lisbon to Vladivostok idea was like, let's hook up with the EU and we'll join that and then we'll be part of the biggest block. And so he was trying to have good relations. And by starting this war in Ukraine, he's effectively abandoned that. And that was the idea of setting up the EEU, the Eurasian Economic Union, because he couldn't join the EU, Russia's too big, but his idea was to set up an economic Eurasian Union. And that, I talked to the architect and it was built as a carbon copy of the EU. The two are entirely compatible. And so he wanted to do some sort of deal whereby those two became linked. And the EU also has the useful um, role of tying in Central Asian countries. And so that China's forced to then deal with Central Asia, not on a bilateral basis, but as a multilateral with the EU, which is a balance to China. And Medvedev was out this morning. And another obvious thing for Russia to do is to try and bolster all these non-Western institutions. So you've got the EU as one, G20 is another one, um, Lavrov said there's no point joining the G7, they're no longer interested. Um, and the 
what was the other one? Um, the oh, the New Development Bank, which is an alternative to the IMF, which was set up by China, Russia, India. Um, and Medvedev was talking about all these, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They're trying to build all of this alternative to represent the emerging markets against or in the face of the West, because they feel like the IMF is Western dominated, the World Bank is Western dominated, and they want their own institute. I mean, to what extent, and I think this has a lot of appeal to a lot of countries, you know, they're interested in, in having these alternatives. Um, so, you know, to what extent are we seeing here a break in the world with the, because the developed markets are complaining, and this was the comments coming out of the Africa conference in Moscow at the same time just last week, was that, you know, you have this colonial paternal attitude to us where you're in charge, you lecture us, but, you know, you can do what you like and you invade our countries and bomb us without UN mandates or without us attacking you. And we've had enough. We want to have some sort of uh, chair at the table. The African countries are saying, why isn't there an African country on the Security Council? To what extent, Alexander, could, do you think the world's being broken in half here? Because China definitely, I think, with its visit to Moscow, was saying that it was and it, and it's you know its message to the global south as part of all of this is also saying that it's like let's club together and assert ourselves and get rid of this american-led hegemony of the west over the east well yeah i mean that's kind of it's a sort of long-standing rhetoric but i mean just kind of quickly um go back to the chinese peace deal i mean i think china is uh, in that sense quite in a comfortable position it doesn't commit itself to the same ex you know choosing a site formally uh as the west done with ukraine you know for russia to present the whole thing is actually us against the west is you know plays both to the uh, domestic audience but also to the global south right so this is a kind of this anti-hegemonic strike and so forth and so forth and conveniently kind of skipping all the other things like the actual um uh, you know um place of Ukraine in it and so forth. But uh, for China to come up this peace deal, which is extremely vague, and I think it's designed to be vague and kind of not to be implemented because I think it's all clear to everybody that nobody is anywhere ready to, to, to negotiate. But, you know, for China to be seen as having uh, not explicitly committed itself to one, one of those sides, uh, you know, uh, like the West did, it's actually, as I said, they are plays up to, first of all, in the future, it could become, could become uh, hopeful, uh, great power, not great power, but you know the mediator is um, would be probably be needed at some point. Uh, and secondly, yeah, it can sell itself as it is for everything good in the world, right? Uh, both um, you know uh, for for preserving integrity and uh, containing NATO and so forth, uh, as Russia is saying. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, but it's I mean, fundamentally, it's issue of. Um, um, uh, Kind of structural uh, economic and geopolitical interests uh if uh you have um pretty much uh i mean china been talking about and russia about dominance of uh, american dollar and so forth been trying to kind of to create alternatives not successfully um um remember still not um uh, you know world reserve currency and so forth um so uh, there is this broad um kind of understanding of the um uh or for, for anti some some form of anti-hegemonic meaning western and united states uh discourse in the south but um uh bottom line you know you you still deal with economics with specific politics india you know has its own politics and its specifics you know it's not going to join just for the sake of joining right i mean russia will yeah. join for anything now because they have no choice but others they have much more kind of balanced uh, specific interest they have to consider as well as this broad uh, kind of frontier anti-western anti-colonial uh discourse which will therefore you know god knows how long why um i can ask you concretely i mean we said that the the chinese plans off the table i agree that the two sides uh ukraine and russia are so far apart in their starting positions on um, where they might do talks how will this war end um well, I mean, um, I think it will end more, more or less where it is now. Uh, I mean, this the line of uh, um, the lines which are there on the map will probably give or take um, uh, will probably be what's what we will end up in a few years time anyway. 
uh, there's a lot depends on Ukraine's ability to actually push back now to break mm -hmm. through and change the uh, dynamic on the ground. They seem to be quite, um, you know, chippy about that and uh, think they can break through. I'm not so sure. I think uh, merely the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the head of the or chief of uh, whatever, whatever is the, the top American general, he's been extremely um, um, skeptical about ability to uh, Miller, yeah. Yeah, uh, to, um, uh, to to break through, and I think that you know once you have this well entrenched Russian position, you know fortified and uh, mobilized. I mean, they, they you know the early Ukrainian uh, successes were because of um, Russia's uh, dire lack of actual troops, right? You know, they simply yeah. didn't have enough to hold both positions, and across Ukraine, been mobilizing much uh, earlier than the Russia. But you know, once you have this. Kind of dynamic. I don't know. I mean, obviously not military respect, but you know, looking at reading military experts, uh, to me it seems extremely unlikely that either side can have a major breakthrough. We go mm -hmm. to a war of attrition along broadly along this line. Uh, Russia certainly can have a um, bigger capacity in terms of able to hit uh, Ukraine territory whenever it wants uh, with missiles and so forth. And if you think about it. Stalemate along the line, and then they're just constantly bombing uh, the power grid and uh, and so forth and so forth. How long? So where the Ukrainians turn? Yeah. Nigel, do do you agree? I mean, do you think this is going to go on for years? I mean, I, I don't see um, a negotiated solution. The only way to force it is if there's some sort of I mean, um, ammo supply crisis, which could happen. Um, but what do you think? Okay, a couple of points. So, I mean, firstly, the course of this war has been extremely unpredictable from the start. There have been lots of surprises. Uh, prepare for more. Uh, the conventional wisdom last summer was that this was grinding, attritional, World War One-like, and nothing much was going to shift for a, a long time. Uh, that was true until it suddenly wasn't. And you had these uh, uh, breakthroughs in the autumn uh, around Kharkiv and then Kherson. Uh, that's just one, one example of the when you roll the dice of Mars, uh, they keep tumbling in, in surprising ways over time. So I'm far from confident that even in the shorter term, we have any clear sense of how it's going to uh, develop, especially as Ukraine acquires uh, steadily more sophisticated Western uh, support of various kinds. Second point is to the question, how will the war end, is to ask the question, what does an end to the war mean? And I think it's clear now that it's much more than just a question of where you draw lines on maps, because you have a whole series of kind of legal, uh, international legal engines being fired up now. The question of accountability for war crimes, including Putin's own personal accountability, the question of reconstruction, the question of um, the terms on which sanctions uh, would be lifted. Uh, the question of the return of adoptees, including tens of thousands of children, from Russia back to Ukraine. And once you get these legal processes started, it's actually very hard to, to switch them off, even if you want to, and I sense no, no appetite there. Um, and finally, and just to perhaps to tie this back to the, to the underlying theme of, 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 of Russia-China relations, this is a war being, being fought on, on two fronts. One is at, uh, on the battlefield between Russian and Ukrainian forces. And the other is on the home fronts, the respective participants. And the, the story on the Western side is that the West has remained remarkably unified, much more so than uh, I think we could have expected and certainly than mm -hmm. expected. And that has manifested itself in escalation and support for Ukraine and in sanctions against Russia. Uh, that is a formidable uh, uh, superiority, latent superiority. Uh, the West is many, many, many times bigger and stronger and, and, and with a larger economy than Russia. So if it, re if it becomes, as it were, politically attritional, if it's a question of a contest for resolve between Western governments on the one hand and the Russian system on the other, it's actually very lopsided. But here's the China point. The thing we don't know at this point is whether there is or might in the future be any commitment on the Chinese side to provide countervailing support, including uh, with deadly uh, means to Russia, military technologies, equipment of various kinds. We just don't know. No, North Korea is providing it. And we know that China supports uh, North Korea. Is that a route through or 
more directly, could China actually provide same military drones as the United States suggests it might? So one, one I suppose, bleak prospect for a very long war, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's in the universe of possibilities, is that you have, in effect, the West supporting Ukraine and China supporting Russia. And that becomes the basis for something kind of very long uh, and enduring. But as going back to an earlier part of the discussion, there are reasons, I think, why China very, very cautious about doing that, because it needs that relationship with the West, however sort of fractious and difficult that relationship yeah. has been in recent times. Let's talk shortly um, in the last quarter of an hour um, about sanctions themselves. Um, as you say, the, the West surprised uh, in the first week of the war that the unity that they showed, no one believed the EU could get that together. And the extremity of the sanctions imposed, the SWIFT sanction was like supposed to be a nuclear last minute option. It came out right at the beginning. The uh, freezing of the central bank's money, no one even discussed that before um, when the tensions were high. And so that was a crushing blow. However, if the sanctions were designed in order to starve the Kremlin of money so it couldn't run its war machine, then they've been an abject failure. In fact, that Russia earns more money uh, in 2022 than it has done ever since um, the independence 91 and moreover and twice as much as 2021 which was also a record year um, spending that money is a bit more difficult but uh, that's another problem um, and the technology sanctions and this one really surprised me I mean that's something that the West controls completely and yet you see the reports from um, the Freedom Free Russia Foundation showing that most of them have got through and the same with the oil price cap sanctions that Although everyone's quoting the euro price has collapsed down to whatever it was, 37, I think, in June. Um, actually, the bulk of 85% of Russia's oil is going to Asia, and there is being paid. The average then was $74 against $80 market price. So a discount of about $5, which is only slightly less than the discount euros used to get um, when we before all these problems started. What's changed recently, to your point, Nigel, is that Burrell said um, a week ago that they've run out of sanctions. You know, they've hit Russia with everything they can think of, and any sanctions going forward do more harm to the West than they do to Russia. And what's changed? Um, Blinken has been flying around, and suddenly we saw Turkey cut off trade. Suddenly we saw the Kazakhs saying, like, we're going to check everything. I just was in London talking to Georgians, and they said, no, everything's being checked now. We've turned a thousand shipments away in the last week that were going through. And the idea, and, and von der Leiden was on the wire yesterday saying the 11th package um, isn't really going to contain anything new. What it's going to do is about closing loopholes. And I've described this as whack-a-mole, but your point about the West being so powerful um, is probably a good one because I think Russia's on its back foot now because if it does get cut off from all its friends, then it's going to be in real trouble. But this is not clear to me how this plays out now. Um, if you're playing whack-a-mole, you have to nail all the holes shut. And that's going to be incredibly difficult to do because traders are traders. You know, they'll find ways, they'll find new ways of doing it. I don't know, both of you, maybe Alexander, you can kick into that one. Do you think the sanctions have worked or have they failed? Well, obviously they worked in the sense that they are imposed, um, you know, real, um, you know, pain on Russia in that sense, you know, you don't, you know, instead of selling, I mean, of course, the 22 was exceptional year because it was still trading with Europe, more broadly speaking, with both oil, uh, <coughs> diesel and, um, and, and even gas until... Um, uh, for most of the first half of the year so i mean that's is not going to be quite repeated and i think this year will be quite challenging for russia financially because of all the kind of changes in logistics and so forth and uh you know tax system etc but i think broader point is that russia hasn't collapsed i mean i, th I think the um the expectations was that it would be such a severe block that it's a shock to the russian economy they still wouldn't be able to function i think that didn't happen First year actually was quite was okay, uh, and you know now we go into longer term and a bit longer term. You know, uh, you basically went from my understanding, what looking at all these various um, uh, reports and uh, so forth about sanctions, so forth. Russia will simply stop to adapt, right? It will uh, will continue to adapt itself. Uh, you can't completely block Russia off because, of course, it has the biggest uh, land border with China, so it will still get. Uh, um, <clears throat> 
um, uh, tra trade with China. China has no interest in you know stopping that. Uh, yes, there could be uh, issues that Chinese companies will have to choose whom they kind of prioritize. Uh, so I think there probably there might be like a two-tier system you know one company or banking system big banks deal with western type of goods and then local ones or smaller ones you know operate with russians so forth but basically kind of what we're talking about it is since there's been no collapse you know like europe will adapt to buying living without russian gas but buying it through lng and what or uh, consuming less russia will regulated up yes it will be a much uh, there'll be kind of bottlenecks there'll be challenges and so forth but broadly speaking i think now we, we're moving towards a stage where Russia is really kind of decoupling itself from the West. Uh, sanctions hurt, but not enough to actually, you know, bring it down. Uh, and that's probably the prospects for the foreseeable future that Russia is simply that's is. That's uh, key point, isn't it? Sanctions hurt, but not enough to make it change his mind to actually stop the war. I mean, it's, it's just adapted. And thanks to Putin's fiscal fortress, and thanks to his friends in. You know the market the the chinese and and indians together have absorbed all of the two million barrels a day that used to go to europe they just found a new market outside the sanctions regime they're going to have more difficulty with with the products mm -hmm. and if the west cuts the technology off it's failed to do that so far but if it does then that's also going to leave russia to stagnate but like you say it's it's painful but um russia uh, russia can cope uh i, I also i think sorry i mean they also i think they you know broad assumption in Russia that sanctions here are for forever essentially yeah. so they not um, there's no kind of incentive to change behavior because the thing even if they give up in Ukraine you know most of the sanctions will remain you know there are sanctions against China as well because you know uh, you know America doesn't want to have kind of China to lead in kind of critical areas and so forth um, so uh, I think the broad assumption you know sanctions have been imposed we just have to adapt to them and uh, that, that's what they start doing there'll be costs but as I said, yeah, the critical costs are not quite there. And I don't think they will be there anymore. Nigel, do you agree? You think the sanctions are crippling or is it something that Russia's just... I mean, its growth potential has gone from 2% because Putin was taking all the money that should have gone into investment and putting it into gold in the central bank to prepare for this war. And now the growth potential has gone down to 1%, which is, I don't know, it's stagnation over a long time. But I personally don't think Putin cares. I mean, that was the way the Soviet Union was run. You didn't bother with consumer products and prosperity. You built nuclear weapons. And I think Putin's in that frame of mind. Well, one, one question there is how public opinion, how elite opinion responds to that. In, 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 in Soviet times, they never really had experience of anything different. Uh, and now they have for, for pretty much 30 years. And they're, so they're losing something very quickly that they've got used to. But the, and the, to the underlying point, so I agree with Alexander that the, uh, the uh, expectations among some that somehow these sanctions would cause a collapse of the Russian economy uh, quickly uh, were always unrealistic. And the sanction story was unhelpfully oversold. Uh, by by sanctions enthusiasts, and there was an element of us going straw man there. That's never how sanctions work. I don't know of a single case of sanctions having caused any economy to collapse within a matter of months. Uh, even you know a, a much smaller economy and less resilient economy than Russia. So that hasn't been kind of in, an informed or helpful view. And there were unfortunately some sanctions advocates who were saying it would do that. So. We need a more sober and realistic and more historically grounded, I would say, uh, view of uh, of what sanctions can do and over what kind of time frame. I mean, that happens. I'm writing a book at the moment about about sanctions. I'm looking back at the things that happened in the 1970s and 1980s. And there was uh, you know, a proper degree of in, impatience uh, with what was then called uh, in diplomatic circles light, light switch diplomacy. The idea you press a sanctions button and things switch off again. That didn't happen then. It didn't happen now. So what are sanctions doing? Um, so uh, they they are uh, disrupting flows into Russia and they're disrupting flows out of Russia. Uh, and the the flows out of Russia that's that's uh, the thing to look at when we're considering the question of Russian public finances. You're absolutely right. It was a, a record year last year, but that of course was before the um, uh, the sanctions on uh, well the oil price cap. Uh, in December, and then on oil products in February, and already the the uh, the figures that we're seeing from Rustat, to the extent they still publish them, because as you know there are plenty that are now classified, um, uh, suggest that their revenues have fallen very very significantly. And already, I think eighty eight percent, eighty seven percent of the 
projected deficit for this year, uh, a budget deficit has already been uh, reached. Uh, it's actually, uh, we got a piece on the side this morning. It's actually a hundred percent. Ten days of uh, okay. reached the whole thing. But again, there's a huge debate about that because uh, I was talking to to Chris Weaver um, about this, and he says, "Look, it's a one-off." And uh, Misushin was saying that they front-loaded a lot of the social spending that normally happens in December. They did it in January, so we have to wait and see until April um, whether they recover. And the oil guys are saying it probably will do. And the you know, as you know, the IMF came out and also said that there's going to be 0.3% growth this year. Because again, they assume that the oil market's working because you've got this huge hole with the oil being able to go to Asia, which takes up most of it. And Russia continues to earn lots of money that way. Mm. So I don't know, that, that that's a very, I don't know, it's a very opaque question at the moment. It, it's we're, we're in a couple of months at the moment. They, they really... also have enough money to see them for, for a couple of years anyway. Yeah, and, uh, there's at least they do, but things are slowly on all fronts getting more difficult. I very much doubt the Russian economy will, will grow this year. Even if it does, how is that manifesting itself at, in, in, in welfare for ordinary citizens? Uh, Russian defense spending and domestic security spending are increasing enormously. So I think the big picture is a shrinking pie and a steadily greater slice of that going into security-related spending, which doesn't make the lives of ordinary people better off at all. On the contrary, uh, in fact, it makes the, 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 the large-scale deaths of, of, uh, of uh, conscripted civilians in the field much more likely. So um, it's, yeah, it's not a matter of light switch, it's a matter of a dimmer switch. Things will get worse on all fronts steadily uh, in, in coming years for the population and for elites as well. And the question then becomes, uh, how long can a regime like this sustain policies that are draining both blood and treasure um, from uh, society uh, before something changes as a consequence of that? We just Doesn't that assume that the war continues endlessly for years? Because, I mean, you've got a thousand companies that said they would leave. In reality, 9% have gone. 4% of German companies have gone. They're just sitting there waiting to restart their business. And some of them, like Alshan, uh, are still actually working and in investing and expanding. And, and they still have this subsidy of the oil and metals that they're now selling in Asia instead of to the West that's always subsidized the Kremlin and allowed it to have corruption and inefficiency because it has this extra money to spend. I mean, I mean, the issue of um, uh, living standards and um, elites and so forth. I mean, it's all, uh, again, uh, you have to kind of take, take it in perspective uh, in a sense that, I mean, I've been in, in St. Petersburg in December. I mean, things exactly the same as they were, you know, December before that. Uh, yeah, it, it could be worse uh, the following December, but, you know, it's all kind of gradual there is a lot of, um, I mean, of course, you know, they're spending on uh, lots of money on uh, on the on the um, on the weapons. But you know, Putin's constituency is actually <laughs> Ural Vagon uh, Zavod, which is the the biggest tank factory. Uh, there was, you know, it's 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 not as simple as that. I mean, and that if you look at Russia's, yes, they had very good years, two thousands were early, but after two thousands, the living condition, uh, the standards have been either plateauing, you know, keeping at the same level, or uh, going down uh, a little bit, so I mean, it's, we don't. It's, it's. I mean, it's the the, the key is, you know, if there will be sort of sudden, you know, sudden or substantial uh, deterioration in living standards uh, that uh, will cause it. But if it's just a gradual slide down, a uh, slide, then maybe it's, it's won't be so problematic for them. The only thing is, of course, is that Putin has a re-election in two thousand twenty-four. And, you know, uh, for that, they would be a lot of pressure on them to increase, um, you know, social spending on social welfare and so forth. Uh, and that could be difficult. But uh, but yeah, but I mean, it's 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 all kind of uh, long term manageable. Uh, and um, I mean, that's my impression anyway, that it's it's it's, it's there's not going to be a sudden kind of revolution uh, against it, because also I think I can sort of find a final point to make is that. 
you know, getting out of it is actually not that straightforward. I mean, how, what do you get, how do you get out? You know, you give up Crimea, you withdraw, you, uh, you know, start paying reparations to, to Ukraine for, you know, for, uh, for foreseeable, you know, forever and so forth. You know, this is not kind of an appealing way out, even if you wanted to finish it, you know, if you want to let's overthrow Putin and just get, uh, you know, uh, get rid of Crimea and, um, you know, all the, you know, <clears throat> uh, oil uh, revenue, uh, we might have so to, to pay for Ukraine. It's, it's not an attractive option either. No, I agree. And, no... and with you, Nigel, too, I, I think you're right. I think the issue there, though, with um, the shrinking pie and the falling standards of living, um, it's a question of time. And I think this is going to play out like um, Latin America, when Argentina was used to be one of the richest countries in the world. And then just over the course of whatever it was, 10, 20 years, you know, it just went backwards. And, and I think Russia faces a similar fate because of all these these restrictions but then that's not going to come quickly enough to change the politics you know to see in an uprising you know to oust putin or even to you know knock him from his pedestal the 24 elections that are coming up um he's totally in control of the media machine and he's also got the people behind him this nationalist patriot thing that he's done um and so i'm pretty sure that they'll they'll vote him in again if he wants to stand again don't you think so Nigel? It won't be it won't be voting in a sense that we recognize the elections will be more meaningless than ever and that raises the question uh if they are now truly finally obviously uh and emphatically meaningless do they cease to fill fulfill any kind of residual functions that might have been useful even as a kind of pretense of legitimacy there was that of course navalny wasn't allowed to run in 2018 uh elections were pretty meaningless then but People still went out, uh, and there still was um, a, a a kind of performative I don't know, veneer of a process in a flattened landscape. Now, no independent uh, media, no opposition figures or uh, or uh, movements at, at liberty. Uh, if it really is something more Soviet than ever, of course there'll be more than one candidate nominally on the ballot paper. It won't mean anything. Uh, are we not in different territory now? And indeed, there are some, there have been some chatter from some of the hawks that they should postpone the elections. They're clearly not going to do that at this point. Um, but the larger question, it's not about uprisings from below, it's about discontent from within. And again, we are entering very, very sort of speculative territory. But I think at least pose the question this way, how long can a leader whose fundamental policy um, makes uh, the majority of the elite unhappy and alarmed and worried about the future. I think that's the case. I think most people who sort of matter in the system realize the war was a terrible mistake. They realized it from the very start. The body language of most of them is very awkward around this. There are the exceptions, and we can name them, of course, who are enthusiastic and are all in on this. Most, most of the, of, as it were, of the big people just want this to stop, I think. How long can a system sustain a situation where most of the people who sort of matter uh, want the most important policy to change? But but I think the, the key, sorry, the key point is that I think uh, uh, how much they, you know, shocked and don't, don't like what uh, what happens. I mean, I think there is a realization that you simply cannot go back uh, pre uh, pre pre war period. You know, that's gone. You know, there's not going to be a trade with Europe. Uh, there's not going to be any um, kind of uh, <clears throat> Uh, yachts uh, on the Riviera, uh, on Côte d'Azur, and so forth. So, I mean, uh, it's it's we are in a different different environment in that sense. And those who, you know, in the Russian elites, you know, there's an intense competition. You know, there's people who want to move away from uh, from Putin. You know, there'll be like twenty of them who want to take the pace and and um, you know suck up to him. So uh, it's 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 I, I mean. Uh, popular protest not going to happen. I don't think there will be kind of any um, uh, elite protest either. So I don't think uh, we are in this for kind of foreseeable future. That's why the way I see it. But uh, yeah. I agree. I, I mean, my the the popular. I mean, talking to people on the ground, our correspondents there. I mean, the the people are fully behind Putin. They bought, you know, they drank the Kool Aid, and uh, we're under attack by NATO. It's a proxy war, and we have to stand up because we're great Russia, and we're not going to, you know. But even anything. if they wanted to, there's no way out. But without there's no way they can. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, if they did stand up, as Navalny shows, then you um, you immediately get thrown into jail, which is a, um, a problem. And secondly, with the elites, um, I, I don't know. It's the fatalistic. I mean, the same mentality applies to them. 
and there's this sense you know within the system you just try and survive you make your money you get yourself comfortable and actually the system provides a great deal of comfort for people at the top of the tree uh, and they're like yeah we've got this external problem but actually i'm concerned with like moving this ownership of that company and that office to my wife over here and i'm worth millions and i can still go to the maldives you know I, you know there's no real restrictions on my nice life I may have lost my house in nice it's this whole like god's too high and the czar's too far and people's mentality is simply to um deal with what they can and get what they can um so again i think that just leaves you in a position where the whole system like you say nigel doesn't function stagnate but there's no possibility of um no possibility of any kind of revolt either at the high level or at the street level the, the czar might be far away but it doesn't feel far away when he's telling you you have to go and fight in this in this war and die or your husband does or your son does and that's why i do think the the situation with public opinion is much more ambiguous and kind of complex and mottled uh, than the sort of emphatic support would suggest and yeah. evidence from for that particularly around what happened during the uh, mobilization, partial mobilization in September, that caused a great deal of anxiety. That's when the war really started for most yeah. of the Russians. And if if more partial mobilizations uh, become necessary and, and from, from the wider population and not, not more from the prisons, then watch what happens, really. I think there's, I think that things are, uh, it takes longer than you think, but then it happens faster than you expect in terms of kind of anxiety. Indeed. Guys, we've run out of time, so I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Fascinating, and uh, still everything's up in the air. It remains very uncertain, but um, hopefully things will work out. We'll be peace in Ukraine and stop the killing. That's, I think, the most important thing we can get to. So once again, to Nigel, Alexander, thank you very much. And for everyone outside watching, thanks for taking the time to watch us. Again, I point you to bne.eu slash welcome, where you can find all sorts of goodies to follow up. Until next time, this is Ben Aris for me, Berlin, saying goodbye. Thanks again. Thank you.